0: Welcome to Arvid and Tyler Catch Up. I'm Arvid. I'm Tyler. Yeah, let's catch up. (laughs) I don't know if you like that intro, but I kind of enjoy it, so you might want to keep it for a while. Um, I want to share something with you today right off the bat. I had a hilarious little experience of staying calm. Yesterday, mm-hmm. or wanting to stay calm and establishing process around it. So I think this this would be a good lead into uh, this episode today. Um, last Friday, uh, like any other Friday, I, I released or thought I released my podcast, my newsletter, and my YouTube video. And mm-hmm. it turns out, after checking yesterday and b- being slightly surprised by the low like listener count of my podcast episode and the analytics that I occasionally check, that I had forgotten to actually publish my podcast episode. And it was both extremely embarrassing to um, have something that goes out to hundreds of people just fall through. I, I mm. didn't get anybody complaining about it because people know um, it'll it'll end up, I guess. But um, it was, it was pr- pretty sad to think that I didn't have anything in place to remind me of this. And I, I thought mm. that was a good opportunity for me to think about how I can be less stressed about this in the future because it stressed me out. It stressed me out mm. last night. I could barely sleep to think that something just like not clicking the schedule button could upset my two hundred uh episode run of having you know like successfully and reliably provided the content that people subscribe to before every week, so yeah, I just wanted to share that that was a quite quite a hilarious thing to happen. I immediately jumped on Twitter and told everybody about it because <laughs> I thought <laughs> this is a the build building in public opportunity to share something that hilariously um bad. Or also, it's really not that high impact. It's not that like a payment didn't go through or anything. But had that yeah. been a sponsored episode, which it wasn't, that would have been a problem, right? Somebody would have paid for a sponsorship that wouldn't have gone out to the complete amount of people because I did release it. I did release the episode yesterday, and I got lots of people downloading it, of course, because they mm. are subscribed to the the, the feed, but. I then released another one today. So all of a sudden, that other episode only had one day. So it was it was a whole thing, and I just wanted to share it, um, how I felt quite embarrassed at that moment, but immediately thought mm. this is an opportunity to show other people that this is fine, even 200 episodes in. So let's hope this never happens with this podcast. But on my personal <laughs> podcast, I, I had this little opportunity. But I, I tried to stay, stay calm throughout it and establish a process around it, which – To me just means uh, double checking, (laughs) you know, like half an hour after it's supposed to go out. And I did reach out on Twitter to my other fellow founders asking if there are solutions actually that would help with this, you know, that would check Mm. if a new email has gone out every Friday at 930 after half an hour after it's supposed to go out or if a podcast was released or or not. And apparently a couple of people are working on something like this. So I'm glad to see that the SAS, yet another calm SAS solution is in the working somewhere else. But uh, yeah, that, that was my little story yeah. this week that I really wanted to share.
1: Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I'm glad you got it sorted out. Um, I think, you know, it's nice to like, how can I put this? Like something that is similar that I always say people will catch typos in my writing and I remind mm-hmm. them like the typos are how you know it's me just writing these things and I haven't outsourced it to a ghostwriter sort of thing. And you know maybe this is your version of that, which is just like you know the the like occasional error is how you know it's still just you doing all this yeah. stuff and not some like professionalized back office podcasting you know churn out machine. Um, mm-hmm. So you know this is this is indie creating at its heart, <laughs> right? So yeah, I sometimes guess. it goes wrong. <laughs>
0: It did give me a, a nice opportunity uh, to see how many people actually listen to the podcast just from the link. Because the link was uh, to, mm. to the, the draft that you can listen to. Like, it, it's it's already mm. there. It's just not public-public, right? Not published to the feeds. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw, like, uh, not not more than, like, 20%, but somewhere around the number of people who apparently go through the link. The link that I put on Twitter and the link that I have in my email and all of that. That is in the, in the, the YouTube description and stuff. So... It's good to see that eighty mm. percent of people who listen to my podcast—something that I probably would have never figured out if I hadn't had this little accident—you know—are people yeah. who are regularly subscribed to the show. Just tells you how effective your other links, your, your marketing strategy is. So I took it as an opportunity to learn something. So sure. that was that. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you have any lessons learned for the last week?
1: I, I do yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna share one last thought on that, which is a little you know I think it could be fun if we drop some requests for startups um, mm, wow. uh, in here. So we actually worked on this a little bit at ComFund. we had a little internal project that we called like no code status. The basic premise was that you know we're all relying on all of these different tools. oftentimes we have you know 15 20 30 maybe you know upwards of 50 different tools and services that we're using to kind of make our businesses run. And, you know, when you have like a SaaS app, you can use all of these like uptime monitoring and and tests and things like that to see when some piece of it fails. And there isn't, as far as I know, or last time we really surveyed it, a really good tool for creating those uptime tests for exactly like this, right? Just saying like, mm-hmm. you know, check, like you maybe add a little fake email address to your distribution letter and you can write a test that says, if you don't receive something with this subject line by 10 a.m. Friday, notify me, right? Um, we didn't find anything like that and we started working on it, kind of just like got bogged down, it, like it wasn't feasible as far as we could tell to build something. Mm-hmm. Um but, like it may be so that that would be an awesome like request for startup right, like a little um, monitoring tool for all the different you know non code automations that are running um, in their business, so but yeah, yeah. lesson learned um, so we 've been pretty heads down uh closing our fourth fund right now so um you know for folks who don't really know um i i run the calm company fund one of the main things that we do is we we raise these funds you know investors come and commit capital to us we put it into a big pool and then we invest in a bunch of companies out of that fund and those tend to run in cycles of fundraising and then investing right now we're in the fund close period until um basically until the first of april so it's like the final part of it and um You one of the interesting lessons learned from that has been the the real value in following up. Um, you know, we're doing outreach to our investors who are often very busy people. And it can be very hard to think about how to communicate to someone who's very busy and has, like, a, like, even like me, like we were just talking about, like, my inbox is a war zone, right? And so, like, what do you do? And um, one of the things we found is the value of just sort of polite automated follow ups that don't really escalate um, when there's a deadline, right? So, so, I wanna be very careful about this. Like when we reach out to investors, first there's a custom outreach, right? There's a you know direct communication. Usually they talk to me. Then they say, This is awesome. I'd love to invest in the next fund. Great. Now we've moved on. This isn't just a cold pitch that we're doing over and over and over again. We've got them the conversation going, but then they commit. And then you have to get them to follow up and do a bunch of things. You gotta get them to like assign some documents and wire some money and all this kind of stuff. And that can be a really leaky bucket because you have these busy people who like what you're doing, but they have full-time jobs, they have, you know, a portfolio of these sorts of things. You're like 52nd on their priority list, right? Even though they love what you're doing. And there, in that moment, we found a lot of value in sending just a a lot of just polite follow ups that basically go like hey you know we have you down in our database as wanting to join the fund here's the deadline here's your action items let us know if you have changed your mind and we can turn these off right away and we send like a lot of those like multiple ones per week and very consistently we have people after the Sixth, seventh, seventeenth email who are like, oh, I've just been so underwater. Thanks so much for all the follow ups. I'm on it. Boom, done. You know? (laughs) Um, And it can be very weird to do that until you kind of really understand what it's like to be someone with a just fire hose of an inbox. Um, So that's been a cool lesson learned is that every time we've kind of turned that knob up a little more, and again, very polite, very clear, easy opt out so that if they've like changed their mind they can just say like, no thanks, or click a button, right? Um, But that's been super valuable. So I think that's maybe more widely applicable to um, a lot of other instances to just like turn that knob up until things start to go wrong and then turn it back.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly hope that people who listen to this, take away the fact that politeness is pretty central to of course this. Because my yeah. experience with this, I, I just tweeted about it yesterday, right? I, I had a follow-up email to a cold email, and it was horrible. It, was, it wasn't it was just impolite, it was disrespectful. Because somebody just wanted to bounce their thing to the top of my inbox. And they, they pretty yeah. much phrased it almost like that. And th- that's the, the difference between the emails you send, where an investor is reminded of their yeah. somewhat commitment, right? The potential mm-hmm. commitment to a fund that will make them a re- reliable amount of money, or you know, is a, is an investment that they already want to do. Reminding yeah. them of that commitment is so different from sending out a cold email and have the first uh, follow-up email for that unresponded to initial email. Be hey, answer my thing, right? There's yep. such a stark difference between the the way. Not just the way, the reason why you communicate here. So politeness yeah. and actually having something valuable instead of just wanting to cross this off your list. I, I got an email once which literally said, "Hey, could you please reply so I can check this off my list?" <laughs> like, can you <laughs> imagine? I mean, yeah, it's it's the most honest, selfish reply I ever got and yeah. that's that's what it communicated to me right it communi- communicated a very strong selfishness that had mm-hmm. nothing in it for me if they if they were like if they just c- could communicate why this would be good for me as well i probably would not rant on it about it on twitter which I always yeah. do when I get these emails because I need to call yeah. these things out. Because, I, you know, with a following of my size, probably a lot of people take inspiration from the things that I post. And I do not want people to ever send emails like this. I used yeah. to be very much anti any cold email to a certain mm-hmm. point until I realized, no, actually, this is about creating win-win scenarios. Is you know, it's just that it's not a warm connection, which I personally prefer because I'm a okay. I'm a human person. You know, I'm a kind of relationships kind of person. But if you have something that itself should be scalable, your outreach can be as well. But the follow-up and the way you increase um, or you should be increasing value throughout the follow-up instead of decreasing it, right? If, yes. you, if you've sent your first email, that's all value. And then you just say, hey, look at the first email. Hey, look at the second email that tells you to look at the first email. That's not yeah. value add. That's value remove. Right, so, but yeah. if you send me a second email that says you didn't respond to the first email, here's a case study, here's a YouTube video explaining this, or I, I recorded a personal video for you, you know, all anything that gets yeah. some additional value in there, wonderful. And if it's just polite, that might already be enough. But particularly if it's like pre pre warmed, right? If it's a um, Rekindling this kind of connection. So, that is my rant about cold email because it was so, so timely that you mentioned this. It's interesting to see the different perspectives here, right? From a person getting them and having an inbox that is just overflowing and one sending them, seeing that they actually are effective.
1: I think we can recap this into a generalized principle, which is with a cold email, your follow ups should not ever just be like pinging someone to remind them. It should be keep adding value um and and do do so in a way that doesn't require response right so again let's take my view with investors I'll meet someone and you know I'll say hey can I just like send you some updates for this and they'll say yeah fine and we'll just keep sending some updates about what we're doing that doesn't require a response right and then we'll wait for them to express interest then we have the conversation then once they've expressed interest right once they're actually like they've committed to do something then you can switch to just sort of sending the like flat no value no negative value just like reminder emails but when you when you do that before you get the kind of commitment or the investment or the buy-in, whatever it is that you're trying to get, that's when I think it goes way off the rails. It's like, hey, I never yeah. even committed anything to you, and now you're just sending me like endless reminders. You know, yeah. like, just buzz off, right? <laughs> like, yeah, but yeah, because I like you're,
0: I, I think that's this general principle of eventual reciprocity that, that we all yeah. have, right? You give, give, give. At some point, people will give back, or from the mm-hmm. person person's perspective who's taking you get stuff for free at some point you feel like you need to give back but if you send cold stuff you need to give a lot before these people are willing to entertain the thought of giving back so if you try to Mm -hmm. tap into that early right if you try to tap into the the reciprocity before it's warm enough Right. Then then people are upset like I am. And if like you, Mm -hmm. you have a pre-warmed connection that is already a kind of an expression of that reciprocity. Right. We want this or I want this later. Tell me about it when it's time. Then tapping into that reciprocity is okay. It's very interesting Mm -hmm. to generalize that. Yeah. If it's cold, give until it's warm. (laughs) You know, it's like slowly (laughs) heating up the the email. I think that's a. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Wow. Well, I'm glad. I'm I'm very glad that that you're seeing results with this because I certainly do want the comp fund to succeed. Being invested in it myself, I probably should sure. disclose that here. But um, it's nice to see the workings of this because I that, that's something that I have very little insight into. Right? You know, like the the internal communication of a fund. It's probably something that few the fewest people have any insight into. It's also interesting to see how you need to actually employ pretty general marketing and sales tactics still at that level. That's just the same as if I was trying to sell somebody a SaaS subscription apparently.
1: Totally. Yeah, this is a a lesson I've had to learn over and over and over again is I'll be grappling with some problem thinking about it through the lens of the way people who run funds do and then we'll think like, Oh right! I already have a solution for this. I just have to put my like SaaS entrepreneur hat on. We've done that over and over and over again. Like we have subscription based funds, right? Where mm-hmm. you know, and now we have like a premium tier to our subscription based funds, and like all of this stuff works really well. It's just like oh, I got to stop thinking like you know a fund manager and start thinking like a SaaS entrepreneur, and I already have the answer. Right?
0: That's, <laughs> yeah. that's interesting. Do you think like? this is an, a novel development like that, like something where the knowledge transfer from the recurring revenue SaaS industry is finally moving into financial instruments.
1: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've done a lot of it probably more than most any other fund. Um, but you do see that, right? So like AngelList introduced this idea of rolling funds, which kind of mm-hmm. made the idea of like a subscription you know, a little more palatable versus the traditional way of doing it, which is like, I'm going to commit to invest $300,000 and you'll just kind of call me up randomly when you need chunks of that, right? You know, hey, I need 50 grand right now. I need a hundred grand, right? That's kind of scary for an individual. And so, you know, people like the idea of, you know, regular recurring kind of payments more than they like unexpected lumpy payments. And so you're starting to see that kind of bleed over into the industry. Um, I think we do... Maybe more than than anyone, um, just because maybe my background, um, essentially. But yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons that can be taken from says entrepreneurship and other stuff. This is probably a story for another another catch up. But um, I did a brief detour helping launch an ocean conservation nonprofit, and we also brought a bunch of the subscription recurring revenue kind of strategies to to the donation side of things, which is usually obviously very one off, you know, annual donation kind of heavy. So um, yeah, lots to lots to learn. Your SaaS skills to uh, to other opportunities for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk about building SaaS businesses. I think that's that's what most sure. people come here for anyway. <laughs> um, we we were looking into a, a, a topic that has been more and more prevalent on every single newsfeed that we encounter. Mm. Right, like talking about AI and generative AI and to, the crazy ride that is artificial intelligence particularly Mm -hmm. now that we're in the middle of it. I wanted to talk to you about this because I feel there is something about this wave of AI enabled technology or just AI systems and platforms that we can use that is very interesting for bootstrappers for people, Mm. for self-funded businesses. I mean, pretty much interesting Mm -hmm. for everybody, but particularly interesting for bootstrappers. I would like to hear Mm. if you think so, maybe. And, what you might think about that, like what there is, because I, I've seen you like write about this uh, this particular topic recently, and I, I think I would like to hear your your thread uh, presented to me in audio form, <laughs> please. <laughs> I'm happy
1: to do that. I think it would be kind of fun before we dive into because that gets very theoretical, and I kind of mm-hmm. want to like. Level set also a little bit in like what is happening today. So I'm actually curious. I'm gonna kick it back to you for a second here. How, mm. how do you use some of these AI tools in your day to day? You know, either just personally or as a you know, just say a creator writ large when you're when you're making content and stuff. What do you use? So I'm
0: I actually made a, a YouTube video about this just recently, like writing with ChatGPT mm-hmm. because I, I I use it quite a lot in my exploration and and content structuring process. So whenever I okay. have an idea, um, I I tend to just dictate it into my tele into my phone, right? Telephone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do we still say this? Yeah. So I have like auto AI or something. I just dictate it, and it automatically transcribes it, which is quite nice. So I just have this kind of brainstorming while I take the dog out for a walk, or just like walk circles in the backyard to get my my thinking going, or while cooking, or whatever. I just dictate my thoughts to on a particular topic, any random thought, mm-hmm. and then I take the transcript and I throw it into Chat GPT. And I tell ChatGPT to structure this. I just that's all I say. Structure this transcript of a brainstorming session that I had on this topic. And what comes you out. You literally
1: use the word structure this. Yeah.
0: Yes. That's it. I just like okay. structure this or simplify or turn into an outline. I, I tend to mix these okay. up to see what different things come out. But just like uh-huh. uh, remove remove like the superfluous kind of stuff, turn it into an outline. Uh-huh. Sometimes also okay. turn it into a, an actual article because I want to see what, what topics the, the system uh, picks out. But I tend to yeah. focus on the outline because I do not want to ever publish content that is written by ChatGPT. All I want sure. to do with this tool is to use it for my process that leads up to me actually writing the thing. So I, cool. I get an outline. Sometimes I, I tell it to give me the top five themes of the outline so I can see what I talked about the most in all my random explorations and put like a couple main points in there that I made, which is quite helpful. Then I have my outline, and I then I think about the article. Sometimes mm. I tell ChatGPT to write a 2,000-word article on this topic and then I read that article, knowing that this is very likely the article that most people would resonate with, because what ChatGPT really is is um, a public gaslighting engine, gaslighting people <laughs> into believing that what ChatGPT wrote is true. So it will, by definition, try to be the most generally be generally agreeable thing and write the content that most people will probably understand and agree with. That's how I see this 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 model, this this particular language model. And then I read the article and think, okay, there, on, this
1: is on, what... Wait, 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 before you continue, that's really <laughs> interesting. Okay, so you're saying that basically it's is a, a gaslighting engine because basically the way that it works is it is already sort of attempting like the mechanics of it is it, it is attempting to generate consensus yeah. right it says like what is most likely what word is most likely to follow these words and so yeah. what that means is it's kind of this like least common denominator effect of like it's reverse engineering what it thinks other people are going to want to read or say and so you, to, you have to then so then what do you do with that information well, like in your mind
0: since, yeah. since i know that it's trying to be as believable as possible I I see what the most generic article on this issue could, would be like that people would like. Right. And then I think, how can I make this more like approachable? How can I make this actually more edgy in a sense of how can I take my own thoughts that are not the generic thoughts that other people would write about? But how can I take my own and write something better? So I take the generic terms and I try to find some angle that ChatGPT would never come up with. Which I know is folly because the next version of ChatGPT will read my article and probably write the thing that I wrote. But you know, at at this point, um, the current version, whatever comes out of this, I think this is the standard to, to which an article about this topic would probably, what what it would look like. So I need to write something better. So I try to come up with better examples than the one it presents, if there are any, or Mm. just to, to give like my own personal insights that ChatGPT could never have because it's part of my own journey. Right, And it, mm-hmm. unless it ingested my books and all my blog posts, which it probably mm-hmm. will do eventually, like I said, this is temporarily right now, and this is a topic we need to talk about, like how much sense it makes to come up with strategies today, knowing that this technology is constantly evolving. But I then take this article, read it, and I write my own. And what I then do is another thing that I found to be really cool. I use it for um, adversarial adversarial writing, is that a phrase? I take my finished draft, I feed it into ChatGPT, and I tell it, now give me five points that somebody who vehemently disagrees with this article would bring up. Then it comes up with a lot of points and arguments against the things that I argue for. Then I use those counter arguments to defeat them already in my own article. So that it that becomes more, you know, more strong, more defensible as an article. And then that, that is, those are the, the kind of most uh, surprising uses that I have maybe for it. And then I just use it for synonyms and for expre- expressions and phrases. Give me a metaphor that describes this adequately. Give me 20. I tend to ask it for 20 of the thing that I want, right? Give me mm-hmm. 20 examples. Give me 20 whatever. Because you see at some point quality just diminishes, but everything before right. is usually quite usable. Um Yeah, that's, that's what I use it for. And, you know, grammar checking, all these kind of things. I use it a lot in my writing to the point where... I can become the human that is better than the AI because of my mm-hmm. unique experience. But before that, it's quite helpful to see what generic things are important or might be important to, you know, make the articles as approachable as possible.
1: That's so cool. Yeah. That That's a really useful insight for me, to be honest, too. Like I've, I've generally been kind of underwhelmed with uh with this as a tool for publishing and, and original creation, But I think the stumbling block or the insight that you have is starting from the like rambly, you know, sort of transcription of your thoughts. What I've tried to do and what you see in the demos will just be like start with a title, create you know bullet point number one and two, and then say like, AI, finish this for me. And I'm just like, it just never does anything that is useful to me. But I like the idea of take unstructured thought, use the AI to structure it and then go from there, I think that that seems like it would be a much more reliable way to uh, to generate good output. That's, a, output. That's very cool.
0: It's a writing yeah. buddy. Like, I consider ChatGPT yeah. to be the always-on, never-sleeping writing buddy that remembers what I said. That's really what it yeah. is because you can go back into an existing conversation about a particular topic. I mean, when their website allows you because there's not a security bug that they currently have where you see other people's prior uh, chat GPT history, which is uh, really bad, but you can talk about security and AI as well. Um, that is really useful to me. And I, I tend to also use it for summarization. That is also a really good use for this technology. I throw in my whole article. Sometimes you have to paste it in multiple parts because it doesn't take like you can only have so many tokens, like characters or words, at any given mm-hmm. time. So you need to feed it in 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 segments, which you can do. You just have to tell it. I'm giving. You, I will give you three segments. Here's number one. Enter. Here's the second one. Then paste it. Enter the third one. Enter, and then it has that in memory. And you can tell it to summarize the whole thing. And I often tell it create five cool tweets from this. <laughs> Out of which all, probably all five are really bad, so I have to rephrase them. But the idea is uh, also what I use as a prompt is tends to be create five wildly different and engaging tweets. Like you have to be precise in how, how yeah. much variance you want in these things. And I no. tell it, I have a YouTube video that is essentially this article as a as a video. Give me a cool YouTube description that has all the relevant keywords in it. And it will give you a cool YouTube description that you can then copy and paste or slightly modify. So I tend to always modify what comes out of this because it is, Mm. uh, you you can prove at least at this point that a text was written by ChatGPT because it has, um, I think it was low perplexity, um, which means like the variance in the way that it expresses things. It just sounds the same. Not like a human who would have different expressions at different points in a text. And uh, a burstiness, I think, is then the, the variance of that perplexity is also low. Doesn't matter what that means technically, there is a way to detect it, right? That's I'm learning
1: some new words today.
0: <laughs> yes, these are also uh, words that I really like because they are not used anywhere else. And I burstiness love it. Burstiness and perplexity. That is, yeah, Those th- are great. These can be mathematically inferred from a text, right? You can take the text, yeah. take the words, the tokens in it, and do some calculation over how many. Very, v- yeah, very v- varieties of a certain kind of phrase exist, and if that is low, it's likely AI written. Which, of course, we will see AI's overcoming by optimizing mm. for uh, with, with random new variants and see if the perplexity is higher on one or the other. But at this point, at least, we can determine it. And I don't want any of my texts ever to be even to sound like AI because that's just generic and gaslighting, and I don't want that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, I'll talk about how we're using it and then we can move on to a little bit more theoretical stuff. I just thought it would be good to, I feel like these conversations tend to like rapidly move from what's going on in the present to like several, you know, compound iterations forward. And it it can be useful to like root yourself in the present a little bit in in this topic in particular. Um, so at, at our fund, we're using it in a couple of interesting ways. We installed, um, Uh, basically ChatGPT, or I think actually we're using GPT-3.5, but as a Slack bot inside our Slack instance. And we already have a bunch of kind of no-code, Zapier-type things that um, are like bots that basically create feeds of different actions going on in our little ecosystem. So whenever we uh, receive a new update from a founder, it gets piped in somewhere. Whenever we close a new investor, it gets piped in somewhere. When um, Whenever we sell a new ticket for our summits, it gets piped in somewhere. So we have all these kind of like, like Slack has kind of become the, the data stream of what's going on in the company, in addition to where a bunch of conversations happen. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have those kind of like, Grouped out into different projects and uh, in different channels. And then basically all, almost all the information, because we're fully remote, about what's going on in the company happens in Slack. And so we started using it as a pretty effective summarization tool. Right, It can get very overwhelming when you have all that information in one place and you're not necessarily on that team, but you want to catch up. So we have started just basically... Giving it that context of these Slack channels and then just saying, like, you know, write a quick summary about what happened this week in, you know, this project or on this team or whatever. And it does a pretty good job, actually. (laughs) Um, So for me in particular, right, like that's very helpful to be able to just quickly go in and see summaries of, you know, we sold 17 tickets this week and, um, you know, most of them were for this summit versus that summit and blah, 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 and just giving you the highlight of it. And one person, you know, uh, was confused. Used and and accidentally bought two tickets, and so it's been refunded. Like it's kind of giving like that level of of detail on stuff, um, which is pretty cool. So I think I also agree. Like I think summarization is one of the ones where it's just ridiculously good. Um, We've been working on, so we're kind of like creating our own little studio of of making a bunch of little apps like this, and we just started rolling them out to our portfolio, so giving them access to some of these tools as well, which um, I'm kind of excited about. And another one we're doing is using. it to create a summary of the entire interactions with an individual inside some sort of context, like we use Front for email. And so, if you have like a CRM and you have Front and you wire up GPT four or whatever, you can basically say, you know, right alongside in a box, give me a one paragraph summary of every interaction I've ever had with this person, right, going back to you know as far back as your email kind of has it. And so that's been super cool as well. So um, we're using it in a couple of cool ways like that. Not, I would say, as Integrated into our workflow as um, as what you were describing, but more in a way to kind of give us a little bit more leverage and save us time, which has been pretty cool. The other thing we're doing is having it basically do a first draft of our investment research memos. So when a new investment application comes in, we basically pipe that information. Uh, over to the API and then we give it a couple of prompts that we ask ourselves like what's the market size for this business and who are the top competitors and things like that and we just have it create a first draft and it's like 80% of the time it does a B plus job right? which is pretty sweet you, you always mm-hmm. have to have somebody you know looking over it but it, it can save a lot of time uh, for the team yeah. so so this is some of the things we're thinking about um,
0: I think B plus job yeah. is the perfect description of AI as we have it right now yeah. Because yeah. that, it suggests that it's already pretty great. Like a B plus, right? Is, maybe is nothing... B minus is better, yeah. It's maybe B <laughs> That's, yeah, let's get into that specific thing. But, you know, like, the idea that yeah. something is already elevating um, the work that otherwise would have to be done manually and would take a lot of time to, to get to that point and allows you to go from B minus to B plus or even A minus if you're good, you know, like go, get to a yeah. point where it's really good. Um, that that is the actual power of this whole thing like i don't care if i can play like a game with it or have it be funny or make jokes or be like <laughs> in some way funnier or more inventive in in its in its way i don't care about these little human things what i care about is that the work that we wanted to do is done immediately and it's done to a pretty solid quality and which is why it tends to be part of the initial stages of most people's workflows like yours and not the the final result, not the polishing thing. Although we can probably argue that this will eventually happen, right? That the Mm. point of where you can use it will move further and further towards the end product, the better the system gets. Um, I would like to talk to you, particularly since you, since we both put all our, let's call it company internals, right? My thoughts, my topics, and you have your, your data and emails, Onto a system like this and have it work on the data. I would like to talk to you a little bit about security and our relationship with a black box, which AI is mm. at this point, right? Mm-hmm. There there have been companies that don't work with AI at all because it's not clear. There are companies like what I would assume yours and mine, I guess, do into using it to a point where we put everything we think is interesting in there and get results out. How do you consider mm-hmm. An API that we don't really know what it's doing with a data that we sent there, run by a company that has open in its name, but doesn't really disclose anything about the function of that thing that they offer, which is also owned by Microsoft, a for-profit business. How do you, how do you consider making the choice to use a product like this um, compared to not using it? What do you think about that? This is not a, this is not like a, a gotcha kind of question because mm, obviously question. if we, if we were like super privacy and data security focused, we wouldn't even touch the topic with a 10 foot yeah. stick or whatever the, the, the phrase here is, but we both see a benefit in using it over the potential security implications. So I would like to hear your perspective on this and how much thought you put into this, to be honest, to be honest, not too much thought.
1: it's a really good question. Um, and you know i think that my opinion on it is that this this is something that you should really care a ton this, I, like there's a lot of stuff in early stage entrepreneurship that like matters but doesn't matter at the scale that you're at right and i mm-hmm. think this might kind of fit into one of those things where if you are You know you're working at Boeing and you're trying to decide like, hey, we think GPT-4 could really help us with designing our new, you know, fighter jets, right? You should really consider what happens to the data if you send it there, and have a lot of concerns and be incredibly thorough. If you are working with very early stage startups, right, it's a bit like, um, like the idea that no one's going to really steal your idea as a startup, right? It's all about execution. I think it kind of falls into that category where like, yeah, theoretically, you know, there's some hard to measure risk that Microsoft just hoovers up all of this data about a bunch of startups and starts churning out, you know, copycat products ahead of time because it's got all that data in inside of OpenAI. But like, Really like you're much more likely to fail for like a bunch of more obvious reasons right in front of your face. Right. And so like you yeah. you should be so lucky to worry about Microsoft coming after you with like the, the you know the extra edge that they have from the data and open AI. Um, you know, because at that point you've already made it, basically. <laughs> um but it's a That's, good question. I don't know. What do you think? What what would your advice be? Like let's take, I mean, I think the most sensitive thing that I just said, right, is sending some of the data of, of investment applications. Um, to that API, you know, should we make that an opt-in thing? Should we should we let people check a box to say whether or not they would allow that? Like what what should we what's your advice? What are your thoughts?
0: Oh, thats I, I like that. Well, um, let me just, um, I, I have a thought, like the idea of Microsoft owning my data, that's not nothing new, particularly not for developers who've been using GitHub for private repositories where all their secrets are stored, right? Both sure. business secrets and quite literal, the secrets they use to connect yep. to other services. I mean, Microsoft mm-hmm. could have... Access to it obviously it would be criminal if they did because of the, right. the contractual relationship that you're in, which is a yeah. difference to OpenAI, where I think the contractual relationship is whatever you give us is ours now. I guess, right? At, at least uh, from the from the terms um, and conditions, it doesn't. It might not. Honestly, I don't really know. It kind of is like this is a experimental beta. We might use your data to train the model further, whatever that means, mm-hmm. right? That's that's what yeah. I think it is and i think yeah. that's all right too i i don't put my passwords in there i don't necessarily throw sensitive information that i know to be like that i know to be immediately exploitably sensitive in there so my thoughts my ideas my cool new blog post, blog post ideas probably won't uh, be stolen by the Microsoft uh, bootstrapping block, which does not exist, right? That's right. It's, it's also like you're you're right. Their business interest is something else than stealing our three four emails that we put into the thing to to get some data out of them. But it's important to think about it. I think it's important to think yeah. about data hygiene generally. Like a, a data security starts with um, reducing the amount of things that you share, right? Like that's how that's why we should teach our kids. When they go to school, when they use phones outside of the home or in any capacity, like how much sharing a single thing can impact your life. I think I talked about this in a recent blog post where um, it's like if you share a screenshot as a founder building in public, which is really fun, right? You share your ups and downs and your dashboard pictures and something, and then you share a screenshot of your browser. With like forty tabs open and everybody's like, Haha, look at this, 40 tabs, man, this guy. And and then you've just shared all 40 things that you do. You share a screenshot mm. of your like the tab that has the symbol for your bank that you use, or which email mm-hmm. client you use, or which social media networks you may frequent that you're not publicly communicating. Like you just shared mm-hmm. 40 distinct pieces of information that somebody has now about you. Right? Is that something you should be doing? Like even though it's hilariously funny, right? It's it's really the data, the the hygiene of the things you share. That's where it starts. And with AI Mm -hmm. systems, where we don't really know how strongly they persist our information, it becomes an interesting question as well. I have no trouble Mm. throwing my articles in there because I know I'm going to publish them anyway, and the data is going to be ingested by that system in the future anyway. But right. anything that I don't want to end up in the system as a potential thing that it may spout out again in the future, that is a different question. So I think what you're doing is okay, but particularly having it ingest emails will be an interesting yeah. data security question in the future because the other person probably did not agree to have their email ingested, Right. So that's and and this will be this is something and here's the thing that's what I really wanted to talk point. about this whole thing about you with um today about AI we will have to see legislation around this not just yeah. ab- about what AI is allowed to do but what you are allowed to do with AI when it impacts other people's information that it's just yeah. like the European data general data protection situation we will see this with probably the European AI general data protection situation right because the EU will probably be the first instance to try and regulate this. Um, I am very much looking forward to seeing what the, um, the the legal sphere thinks about these kind of things and I'm always looking forward to evo- voices from the data security community. I actually had a, had a chat yesterday with an old friend of mine who worked at Boeing as a data security expert funny enough like that you bring up that <laughs> okay. company and he is a very um, opposed, to many, many of the things that people think AI is great at, conversational AI or generative AI, because he's Mm -hmm. looking at it through the lens of what Cambridge Analytica did with um, misinformation campaigns. And when we think about what ChatGPT is, at least in my words, right, the the gaslighting engine that is trying to convince you that what it says is believable, and Mm -hmm. then you you take echo chambers of political extremism and feed content that can be generated within milliseconds that is reaffirming these biases, you have a very explosive mix of technologies, right? And that's kind of his perspective on this. He's very very excited to get people unexcited about this (laughs) because, you know, there is so much going on that we cannot really fathom yet because we can't look into the system, right? It's made by open AI, but it's a black box. We don't know how it yeah. works, even though they have their research papers out and about telling how, how well it works. We don't know how it yeah. works. And, and that is a big problem um, for the technology itself. Honestly, I bet people argued the same thing about every single technology that we had in the past, right? Yeah. But <laughs> that it, the consequence is that all of these technologies are also regulated, like if you look at yeah. uh, the GDPR, that is the consequence, right, of right. spam and yeah. cookie tracking and Cambridge Analytica and stuff. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to do this while it's happening, not just after. Uh, but that that is kind of my perspective. I-, I try to be cautiously optimistic about the whole field because I see how amazing it has been at impacting my my writing journey. I just have so much more fun writing like this because I have a friend. I now have a little computer friend telling me that what I'm writing about is cool or it's not, or here's something you could also think about. This is so much better than not having that friend, but it's a friend that comes with, you know, it's, it's a friend that has some luggage, some emotionally uh, explosive luggage. And we we need to be aware of this.
1: How let's uh, let's talk about um, what we think it means for you know for business opportunities for mm-hmm. bootstrappers, com companies, indie creators, that type of folks, um, yeah. and then and then we can probably have to move on uh, for time here. But I, I like this topic actually. I, I actually think it would be cool to um, to chat with uh, with your friend and get that perspective. So maybe mm-hmm. we can talk about bringing them that was on. A good um, but uh, yeah, okay. What what do you think about? Let's just you know put your hat on for either either like indie creators or um, you know more like bootstrap SaaS entrepreneurs, that type of folk, um, that type of crowd. like what do you think let me say like wh- what do you think is the biggest opportunity for for using um, AI?
0: At this point, just realistically looking at what has happened over the last couple of weeks and months, in the indie hacker space the opportunity is to be first and cash in on it it's kind of yeah. like that, that's as as pragmatic as i as i can nothing say because if you look at
1: the gold rush yeah
0: <laughs> right wrong it's, it's it's yeah. yeah it's nothing wrong with the gold rush and you see this with peter levels and, and Danny denny postman that's like the, the two poster childs right now uh, right. Uh, yeah in in our community that do pretty much similar projects or often do similar projects and kind of Ramp each other up, which is fun to watch. But what you also
1: I feel see like I'm watching, is, like Messi versus Ren- Ronaldo, you know, of, yes. of indie creating. Basically, I, they <laughs> have
0: they have equally strong fan bases that are kind of throwing <laughs> stuff at each other as well. It's it's quite enjoyable. But what you see yeah. is that these these two creators they are building really cool systems, and then somebody from a much more capitalised business swoops in uses the the traction that these systems already have because they're built on technology that is available to everybody. There is no moat in there at all, right? If You have an API and if you know the the right prompts, if you figure them out, then you you get what you need. And they are using a lot of generative AI, a lot of like picture-based AI. And that is something that, again, with the right prompts is is quickly, you can visually determine if if you're getting better or worse with your prompts. So this is something, if you just throw enough resources on it, you get to that point. And just yesterday, or two days ago, I think, Adobe released Firefly, which is their generative picture AI implementation that hooks into Photoshop and all the other tools. And now all of a sudden, you know, like the tools that were pretty well monetized by indie hackers are available to a general public that will now forever associate them with Adobe you know because they right. have the market power to push it into all of the systems that everybody uses every designer and every every person in that field will eventually forget about the the couple people who built these indie projects and they will um yeah remember the the big names what i do mm-hmm. see as a benefit though is Uh, a lot of indie hackers building little middlemen kind of is it middle people like do we have to say that now little in in between intermediary systems that make the AIs more accessible for particular kinds of audiences like Mm -hmm. people who want a certain kind of UI to build a particular prompt to use with the API not to get Mm -hmm. the result of the prompt but to build prompts or build interactions with that so what I Mm -hmm. think where the market actually is Over a longer uh, period of time, and this is all guesstimation, but it's kind of how I feel looking at what works and what blows up and then crumbles down. What I see working much better are these little businesses that allow you to plug and play things better together. Like Zapier was for no code. I want that to exist as a bootstrapped indie product, and I see some of them, like Tony Dean, that is building one of these things, just little interfaces that make these AIs more accessible. And once you have such a platform that kind of distributes your your own uh, for your users' own prompts to different AI systems, all of a sudden you also reduce your platform dependency, which is the the other extreme problem with AI systems. Like you literally yeah. have one open AI AI. And if Mm -hmm. your key gets revoked, if your access gets revoked, your business is done, which is problematic for a bootstrapper. It's problematic for anybody, but if you have the resources of a Fortune 500 company, you can probably figure out how to set up stable diffusion on your own servers or whatever kind of uh, GPT-like system that, that gets close to this. But if you're a solo bootstrapper that needs that API to work, this is your breaking point. Like if that thing breaks, your business is gone. Risk. That is risk. So if you can be in the area between a changing amount of customers and a changing amount of AI platforms, that is probably the way to go. That's
1: my perspective. I like that framework a lot. Yeah. Yeah, coming from somebody who built a product where we were very dependent on the Google Maps API, and then one day they showed up and said, "This thing that you've been getting for basically free, uh, or like you know was like ten dollars a month we were paying, um, we're going to need to pay. We're going to need to charge you like a half a million dollars a year for access now." And we were like, "Uh." (laughs) "Ah, yeah." So reducing your platform risk is real. That's definitely (laughs) that's a good call. Yeah, Yeah, that's funny. I think I was. um,
0: was, I'll go. I was talking to uh, to Justin Jackson um, a couple of weeks yeah. ago and I released the podcast episode just today, earlier earlier this morning. And um, he, he's he been building Transistor on top of open standards, right? HTML uh-huh. and RSS feeds and all these things that nobody owns. And we were talking about Microsoft because whenever you talk about like dominant forces trying to grab everybody's stuff, we talk about Microsoft eventually. So it's funny how we also talked about that company and like if if they could have usurped the, the podcasting protocol, if they, if they ever had the opportunity, they probably would have. But RSS yeah. is not theirs to usurp. It's a common standard, right? It's something that yeah. everybody can use, which is why Transistor is a calm company. And we should talk to Justin on this show as well. Because <laughs> there is nothing that they depend on so much that it couldn't be replaced oh. with something else. Their integration with Spotify... Important, But if Spotify gets replaced, well, Transistor is still going to be around. And the RSS feed that they give to Spotify to pull these kind of uh, episodes from, they can give to the Spotify, uh, whatever successor there may be, right? So mm-hmm. if you have standards like this, and that is what everybody hoped OpenAI would do, but they have not yet, right? If that exists, yeah. totally different story when it comes to implementing these things. But yeah. as long as there's just a platform that somebody else owns, and that being Microsoft, very risky move to build a business just on top of that.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, yeah, I think maybe I'll think a little bit. I'll share a little bit about how I've been thinking about strategy for for entrepreneurs in this space. Mm. Which is, I think, I agree with all of that, and it leads to a couple of conclusions, at least as far as I'm concerned. One is that I think you know when you look at, um, there's been this like kind of Cambrian explosion of. Um, we're this kind of a product plus like a splash of ai right so like we're you know we're hubspot but with ai we're intercom but with ai we're you know um whatever your cms software but with ai and a lot of those are going out and easily raising a ton of venture capital and um part of what i so i wrote a thread about this maybe like two weeks ago and um I was really cautioning founders against that because you know the the basic bet you're making when you raise a lot of money is you're playing double or nothing, right? You're saying like I'm actually not going to cash out a ton of profits right now. I'm going to run this business at a loss on the premise that I'm going to build a ton more you know sustainable equity value on the back end. And I just don't think that's very possible when you have these two main things that you just identified, right? Which is one that you're extremely dependent on this one platform, which can just eat up all the margin, right? If you're totally dependent on open AI, right now maybe it's not doesn't make sense for them to You know, raise their prices, but eventually they can, right? It's the same thing you have with like people selling on Amazon. For a long time, it was just like this free for all. And now they're just like eating away at your margin left and right. They charge you for adding a coupon code. They charge you for all this sort of stuff. And there's nothing you can do about it. You have to sell on Amazon. And that dynamic is just going to be supercharged with open AI. And then what you also pointed out, which is it's just so easy for the large incumbent players to integrate these features and i actually think the only thing holding them back right now is literally just the cost curve right it's just like why why are they not just like rolling this out just as fast they have huge coding like tech teams it's not that hard and the thing is just the marginal cost of of like the servers is actually kind of high and so yeah. if you have a gigantic user base Right now, for a lot of things, it doesn't make sense to roll it out across your whole user base. But that's going to change super fast. You're already seeing like Microsoft, Adobe, these folks making a decision to say, "Let's just do it." So I think you should basically have a little bit of a kind of gold rush mentality, right? If you're going to go in there with something like this, you see an opportunity, you should make it very profitable, very fast. You should charge upfront, not monthly, right? You yes. should be like, "I want to do this thing," and if my revenue goes like this and like this, that's fine because I made a bunch of money along the way. And I think. Taking that mentality is is really smart. Um, the other thing that I was kind of advising folks to think about is instead of instead of slapping AI into the product, um, think about how you can leverage AI to deliver the same product at a radically lower cost. Right. So you know one of the things that I have seen over and over again is folks who talk about actually doing software development with ai right now and just how phenomenally helpful it is right like you know like you're you're using it as a writing partner is like fun right but you were producing great content before it hasn't made you a 10x better writer now that you have this writing partner right it's at the margins you know whatever. When you're writing code right now, full time, especially if you're like a full stack, you know, small team, and you layer this stuff in, you really do get like phenomenal leverage. I think a lot of folks are not even thinking about how can I just take that leverage and go after some really big fish, right? Like, you know, maybe the answer is not. Shopify, but with AI, it's leverage AI to just go rebuild a Shopify competitor. And instead of charging 2.9%, you charge 0.29% because you're a team of 10, right? (laughs) Like, I think that's a pretty cool opportunity. And I would love to see more folks going after that as well. Um, So I don't know, those are some of the things I'm thinking about it.
0: That. that's that's a great idea too yeah like it's also yeah. a writing buddy it's just a coding buddy right it's like it's a diff- different kind of writing I always joked to think that I was always a writer I was just writing for machines not for people before this <laughs> and I think that that very much resonates with me honestly I I, I used it recently to learn how to write uh, Swift like code for for OS because yep. I wanted to build a little application for myself and like mm-hmm. in like half an hour just on the project that I wanted to build. Like I actually got the thing out of it that I wanted, which is a little tool that copies files of my SD cards whenever I put them into my computer so I can become a photographer, like aim to be an amateur photographer that has an auto-sync SD card system. So that is, I just wanted to build this and I didn't know how to build it. I didn't know anything about macOS development. I asked ChatGPT and it gave me this whole tutorial on the exact thing that I wanted, because I I've, I had to phrase it like precisely what I wanted, but it, it became like a 10 page, 10 co- times continue typing page system that once I had it done, it actually worked. I had to kind of, you know, figure out a couple of things because the versions of what ChatGPT thought was the current version of Swift was different. But other than that, that was that was good code that I yeah. now know how to use and, and write new things for this system that I never ever could before. Within an hour, that's incredible. Right. And that is... I mean, I'm already a seasoned developer, I guess. I pick these up, these things up quickly. But to think that this could help somebody who's never coded before build something in an hour, maybe two, because they have to check a couple things or click a couple buttons more, that is a mind-blowing paradigm shift. So if we... If you think about like what that means for the size of developer teams, I think looking at the the current situation in the United States uh and how you can expense developer costs. That's the only saving grace is that you can now let go of all your developers, and you don't need to pay them anymore to uh, build a software yeah, business, but, but...
1: <laughs> Yeah, but I think it just it's it it you know, it the other thing is, you know, yes, it's going to make the on-ramp for for new developers a lot easier but yeah. at least for now it's just very clearly going to make experienced developers just 10 20x more yeah. efficient right That's i true. used to i remember when i was first kind of uh, you know articulating this idea of micro saas and people say oh like is it about small things and it was like yeah. no the actual definition was it was a scope that a solo developer or a small team could realistically tackle. right. Yeah. And when I was sort of writing about this maybe like seven, eight years ago, you just you just couldn't say we're going to take on Salesforce right? It was just like, there's no way. It was like a t- small team can't do it. There were certain things in software that necessitated you would eventually have a team of hundreds of engineers, if not thousands or tens of thousands. And I think like the term SAS through that lens is basically gone. There's essentially no scope that you can't really tackle in the world of software with a, a team of, of 10 or less um, and build like a real world-class product, I think, I mean, you know, remains to be seen, but my hunch is that that's true, that you could, you know, you could go after some of the, you know, really big, large markets with a small team and, and be surprised at how effective
0: they are. Yeah. You will still have situations where you need more people because probably complexity of the underlying, uh, the subject that the people you're building for how they interact with technology, right? If you're, uh, yeah. have really old systems that are, have very very specific kind of things that you need to implement, but for most businesses in the spaces that we operate in, it's definitely going to move towards this. smaller dev teams that can yeah. put out way more, but it also um, puts a lot of question again on data security, like the thing yeah. that you put in there, right, for it to generate code around, who owns this? Who owns the code yeah. that was generated? This has been a problem with the, the GitHub Copilot, right, that was the, the first iteration where uh, an AI, back then, GPT 2 I think. I don't really know which version it was. It doesn't really matter either, because I guess in in two weeks we're going to be at GPT 9 or something, so who cares? But back then, it already was the question, well, who wrote this code? Was it the person who clicked on yes, take this AI-generated thing, or was it the, the... ai itself or was it a mix between these two is this a new entity and it already started uh, creating problems for schools because kids or students would use it to solve their homework and and now you see it's in academia now you see it beyond development you see it everywhere where text is required so um there's this hilarious south park episode about ChatGPT as well like it's it's made it on south park where mr garrison is uh, I think teaching his class, and all the all students are spoiler alert, i guess writing amazing articles. Um, uh, amazing, like, essays that are mind blowing. And somebody tells him, well, they're probably using ChatGPT. It's something where you could just tell it to do a thing and it'll write. And instead of, of getting mad, he says, Oh, wow, cool. Well, then I could just tell ChatGPT to read and correct these essays and, and grade them, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> like that. The consequence is now we're using this even like as a means to interpret the things that ChatGPT itself has written. There's just <laughs> so much going on in this space. And I wonder what, co- what this is going to do to code because these systems ingest content from the web. And the more content gets written by these systems, the more they ingest their own content. So what we talked about earlier with perplexity and burstiness means that we will now have systems that will actively detect AI systems. That will detect, is the code is the thing that I'm reading written by an AI? If so, I'm not going to ingest it. You know, do you, do you, do you mm. see this this problem? Because they, they need in just human written things. So they need to be able to detect if a thing was written by AI. And then we have the self-cannibalization loop that could be stopped if AIs could detect their own writing. But what if we have two AIs? that do this and one ingests the contents of the other and it, it becomes this or worse of, of kind of content ingestion. There, are, There's a lot to think about when it comes to <laughs> using this to create things that are then running in public, either as text or as code on GitHub or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so it, this is funny how we, we've been talking about AI for an hour now and we barely scratched like <laughs> half of the topics that we actually wanted to talk about here. But it feels like it is a, a genuinely interesting opportunity for businesses. That's how I feel about it. To facilitate yeah. s- essentially selling shovels in the AI gold rush, right? Allowing other people to use AI better for their own needs. And what you said mm. about this being more or less a feature, not a business, that, I think, is, some, uh, is something that everybody who's building on top of AI should consider. You're not supposed, to, I guess, like if I were to, to tell somebody what to do with this, you're not supposed to build a business on AI. You're supposed to build a business so that other businesses can leverage AI for their business. That would be mm-hmm. the more reliable and more sustainable approach. Otherwise, yeah, you're going to run into these moments of uh, dependency issues and all of that. Sure. Yeah, I guess. I guess that's where we are with bootstrapping and AI. It's kind of a mixed bag, huh?
1: I think it's exciting, you know I think it's um it's always interesting when these big kind of like platform waves come through and everybody has yeah. to reevaluate you know their strategies and all that sort of stuff and it's yeah. it's made life a lot less predictable, that's for sure. Um, yeah.
0: Well, I do like it more than Web three, so I can tell you that. Like this feels, and I no shade, right? It's, it's a different kind of technology, and blockchain no, is wonderful for Alphas logistics. Shade, yeah, <laughs> but there's been so much, so much scamming and 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 self uh, selfishness well, going on in that world. That, yeah, that's, that's the structure works. of it. That, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah it's it's uh, but, but for AI. Well, that's the thing. We don't know how AI works. Right, we could be having this conversation in a, in a couple of years when we have more insight into the black box, and then come like pretty much say, "Well, Web three AI was all the same. Who knows?" Right? That's that's the thing. Like, who, who's going to benefit from this I in the it's end? It's already
1: passed. It's
0: already passed the first
1: milestone for not being the same, which is like literally. Value generation. No, when somebody tells you, "Here's this thing, it does X." Like, yeah. in Web3, it just never did X. It never <laughs> right. did it. And, and at least it's like, hey, here's this thing. You can put some stuff in and it'll generate some outputs that can be yeah. cool. Like, already milestone number one. Like, they're not yeah, the same. True. <laughs> you know?
0: yeah. yeah, you're right. It actually has a – even the fact that you can use it to come up with something, right? Write a poem for yeah. my dad's 60th sure. birthday. It is already yeah. value generating at that point. I buy him an NFT for his 60th birthday, and you're probably not going to get anything out of that. <laughs> Yeah,
1: no, exactly. Uh, yeah, it just right. it does the thing, right? Put in some stuff and it will output that and then you say, mm-hmm. "NFT, this is your intellectual property on the blockchain." Is it? No, mm-hmm. it isn't. Oh, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we should have an episode about that. I'm looking forward to the the full hour rant about NFTs and Web3. That's going to be Oh um, yeah,
1: man, I'll, I'll be very happy to not ever think about that ever again.
0: So, uh, that's we'll,
1: right. <laughs> you have to bring on a guest to do that rant for sure. <laughs> oh, that would be great too.
0: Um, um well do, do you want to talk a little bit about the Calm MBA before we close this up with our shout out? Yeah, that's right. Well we we had um l- last week we we talked about like the definition of calmness and that kind of stuff, right? And mm. we both wanted to write a little description of what a calm business is for, for the both of us. And I think we both have prepared something. Would you like me to just like quickly read what, what I think that is so we can also Let's do it. just to debate if this works together or if there are things that we need to kind of iron out. Well, okay. So,
1: to be fair, um, I, I did not read what you wrote. I don't know if you all, I mean, well, I think I wrote mine after yours. So, you also probably didn't read what I wrote. So, so I we did read yours and it's,
0: it is spectacular, which is why I'm going first. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, let's keep, keep the good stuff for best for, for last. Um, yeah. So, I, I just have like six, no, five little sentences here that describe for me what a combus is about. And the first one is that a calm business is a choice against external constraints. So it, it, I'm just going to throw another sentence in there to explain what that means. As an example, like it's, it's taking, making your own choices instead of having somebody else making the choices for you in the mm-hmm. business, right? That could be investors, mm-hmm. that could be the market or whatever. A calm business is something, an entity that has internal constraints that are voluntary, or no, mm-hmm. maybe not, but at least they're not external. It's also a choice for control over pace and process over massive outcomes, right? Control over pace mm-hmm. and process means like you choose how fast you go, you choose, choose how far you go, instead of focusing on this big-ass exit that is looming in the distance. That is not what it's about. It's about building the, the pace and process that works for you. And mm-hmm. I think I already quoted that last episode. A calm business is calm when things go smoothly and stays calm during the storm or aspires mm-hmm. to stay calm during the storm because not you, you can't force yourself to stay calm when you're not. But the idea is always to have the baseline of calmness, whatever happens, to be prepared for everything. And that means um, having processes in place and having systems that facilitate staying calm. Uh, fourth mm-hmm. one is... A com business is a vehicle for value creation, not valuation, which is, I guess, a rephrasal of this is more about the process than the outcome, right? The the mm-hmm. massive uh, sale that you might have, even though that's nice, but if that is your only goal, you have a problem. And a com business seeks leverage without massive downsides, so that that means manageable leverage, leverage that mm-hmm. is, uh, if it's financial. It's not so much that somebody else all of a sudden has complete control over your business, or if it's uh, moving into a partnership or even having customers, it's not having three customers that if one breaks away, you're bankrupt, it's having 300 or 3,000 customers that if there's churn of one of them, it is barely a blip, a, a blip. So mm. that's that's my definition of calmness. How about you? I like that.
1: I like that. I, I don't Thank think you. I would disagree with any of that. <laughs> yeah,
0: good. <laughs> well, it, it just shows that we're slightly aligned on this, which is nice.
1: Yeah, I think I think we're gonna we're just gonna have to synthesize. I think that's the only yeah. the only challenge here. I don't think we disagree on any of this. I wonder if uh, if other folks will have a thought about you know again. I, I'm I still think it would be interesting to also try and pull some other folks and see what they yeah. think, but. Um, Maybe that's just going to be more work than than we can do. Well, we, I think we have a pretty good sense here, so we should just skip just... it and move forward. I'll read my version. Yeah, yeah please go ahead. Um, so I had, similarly to you, like just did a sort of repetition on a couple of different lenses. So um, a calm company founder is long-term ambitious, optimizing for what they can accomplish over decades, not quarters. Nice. A calm company is profitable or on a clear path to profitability. It primarily fuels the business with customer revenue and uses outside capital opportunistically. Mm -hmm. A calm company finds a niche where it can comfortably build a great business rather than slugging it out for winner-take-all outcomes. A calm company takes small bets with a high chance of success and recognizes that go big or go home often means going home. A calm company builds a resilient and flexible work environment that retains happy employees and customers for the long haul. And lastly, calm is the equilibrium a calm company strives for, even when things are inevitably not calm. So I think we touched on a lot of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's Very interesting. <laughs>
0: yeah. The, yeah, the way you phrase these things is more actionable. I like this too. Like then the mine the were mm. more, more like abstract in a way. Both probably mm. are. A good approach for a particular kind of person which is something we should keep in mind when we talk mm. about this to people right because people might have very different approaches to, to the concept so it's nice to see two slightly different but very much attuned ways of expressing this this is really cool i think if we can condense this into one document maybe let chat gpt summarize it a little bit then uh you know compress yeah. it we we yeah. can have a little mission statement that a calm business can print out, put on their wall, and they know exactly what calmness is about. I think that uh, I think that's really nice. I think I quite, I like quite this enjoy a lot. Yeah. it. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think again, like, uh, why did we do this, right? If I recall from the conversation, it was like, you know, again basically, you know, the idea for folks who are just catching up. We're working on this project called the Calm MBA. Um, we're gonna basically produce a a series of you know, I would say lectures, lessons, insights, etc. Probably in the format of a course um, about how to build a calm company. And the premise was, you know, starting from the the landing page, right? The mental landing page, and you know, sell the superpowers, not the features, right? So, so what actually is a calm company, and why should you want to build it, right? As the very first step. And um, this feels like a really good start. I feel like you know we could synthesize these two, and then that becomes like the you know the landing page and the lesson 1 which is what are we what are we aspiring to actually build here right yeah. and then and then you get into the weeds of how to do it
0: i think these are going to make for great motivational posters as well <laughs> <laughs> Hon- I mean, I mean a little, like, uh, air both off
1: calendar one a day. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> honestly, like, that would not G- be too bad. Turn this into 365 aphorisms.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> give 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 me 365 versions of this. Yeah. I probably would spit out a couple good ones in there too. No, but I I, I really like this, um, and and I I think something that is motivational doesn't isn't necessarily like esoteric or in any way uh, you know just a joke. It, it can be quite positively impactful into someone's journey if they, they see that. I think your phrase with the equilibrium is a wonderful one. It's... Mm-hmm. Calm is not a state. Calm is what you aspire to be close to, right? You want to be... an equilibrium is something that for me always kind of... You go over it, back over it, back over it, back over it, because you're always pulled into one direction or the other. So calmness is that the area that you want to stay in, even though you're pulled back and forth between too little and too much activity. I really like it. Well... Usually we, we end with uh, both a shout out, which we can still do, and action items. I think we could uh, potentially skip the action items part today because next week yeah. we're gonna have a little guest on the show. Right, we're gonna have a, our very first highly acclaimed calm founder, which we're not gonna name today. Yeah, but we will Be have care, a sure. guest. Yeah, to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have a guest on the show. So I think um, keep the action items to to the end of that, maybe for the show after cool. that. But I would like to do a shout-out. Do you have anybody you want to shout-out today?
1: I'm, I think we're going to alternate. I, I think I did one last okay. week, so you go.
0: Good. Then then I will I will do mine. I want to shout-out uh, Aprilin Alter uh, on Twitter, at, at Alter, who, uh, who launched a YouTube course today, a really nice course on how to monetize your, your YouTube channel. And she's been a, a really consistent contributor to the creator in the hackerspace. Um, the community and sharing her journey and making money on YouTube coming from, but pivoting away from the Web3 space, which is also an interesting uh, kind of journey to take, right? Because that was something that she was into and then she wasn't at some point. And now she's going into actually teaching people how to find, build, and monetize a YouTube audience. And I think that's oh. something I endorse because I, I really liked her approach, which is very authentic. And I think mm-hmm. that's something... You should look into April and Alter, A-P-R-I-L-Y-N-N-E, Alter, A-L-T-E-R, on Twitter. Nice. Yeah. I guess that's it for today. Wow, we only uh, overdrew our hour by 15 minutes. Isn't that something? Pretty good considering
1: the topics, yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I guess. So this is episode one out of three on the t- the topic of, <laughs> of AI. Now, I, I guess we're, we're going to leave it at that. But I, I do want to look into, in a future episode, the things that you talked about in, in setting up subscription-based uh, donations. I think that's very interesting. Just the idea of how subscription have permeated our lives, like subscriptions by themselves. Mm. I think that's something we could talk about, how that works in yeah. business, how that works in investing. I think that, mm-hmm. that alone is an interesting topic for a future episode. But for now... I'm looking forward to next week with our first secret yet equally magical guest. So I'm uh, very much looking forward to that. Thanks. Thanks so much for catching up with me today. That was really
1: cool. Great catching up with you, Arvid. All
0: right. See you next week.